some children's letters, short letters to pastors. Uh, one little boy, Arnold, age eight, wrote, Dear Pastor, I know God loves everybody, but he's never met my sister. Loreen said, uh, Dear Pastor, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. Carly, age 10, had a question. Are there any devils on earth? I think there may be one in my class. Uh, Ralph, age 11. Dear Pastor, I liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when it was finished. <laughs> Stephen, age 8, said, Dear Pastor, I'd like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. And that's really what this story in the middle of Luke's gospel is all about. I'd like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. This expert in the law comes to Jesus and he comes to test him and he, he stands to speak because in the rabbinical tradition, the rabbi will be seated, everyone else will be standing. It was the opposite of today. And so the Teacher of the law stands up and he asks the question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a commonly asked question, something that was debated and wrestled over in terms of Jewish religious thinking. Uh, how do I get to live in the next age, as it were, the age of God, uh, God's kingdom? What must I do to inherit that eternal life? And um, Jesus, in true rabbinical fashion, throws the question back and refers him to the scriptures and then also says to him, and what do, what do you understand? What do you interpret through the scriptures that you read? And the teacher in the law gives a textbook answer to the first part of the question. What does the law say? What does the Bible say? What does the, the Old Testament say in that context? And he, he quotes two verses, one from Deuteronomy 6.5, one from Leviticus 19.18, and he says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Textbook answer. But he doesn't answer the second question at all. He just leaves it at that. He doesn't give any personal insights. He gives no examples. He doesn't give any uh, illustrations of how he has found that a joy or how he has found that a challenge. He doesn't answer Jesus' second question. So Jesus just says to him, well done, you've answered correctly. Go, do that, and you will live. Teacher in the law feels he's lost a bit of ground, lost a bit of face, and so he wants to sort of try and gain some initiative back, and he says, and who is my neighbor? And to you and I, it may sound like a, um, what's well, a question that we've heard many times. We know this story well. It would have been even more well-known in the context of the first century in Palestine because it was a question that was commonly asked and debated by the Jewish people and among the rabbis. Because being aware of the Old Testament command to love your neighbors yourself, the question then came, well, who does that include? Who is my neighbor? And it's really a very human question. And the question is, how far does my love need to extend? It's like when you hear that command of God, our response then sometimes is, could you just clarify that and can we please bring it down a couple of notches? So can you please tell me, what can I get away with doing? Who, who do I need to love? How far does my love need to extend? 
And the answer that Jesus gives him is not a defined list. And what people would have expected was that Jesus, as being referred to in this instance as a rabbi, that he would give a defined list. That's what rabbis at the time normally did. The mainline Jewish teaching was that Jewish people, fellow Jewish people were your neighbors. Non-Jews were not your neighbors. And so you were duty-bound to love your neighbor, your Jewish neighbor as yourself. But if you encountered someone who wasn't a Jew, who was a Gentile, you were under no obligation to help them, even if they were in a state of dying. You were under no obligation, under Jewish religious thinking, to do anything whatsoever for them. One rabbi taught that in terms of the agricultural community, say someone who um, worked on a farm who was a non-Jew, that if they fell into a ditch and hurt themselves and were in danger of dying, if they, were, if they had been a Jew, you were duty-bound to help them out. If they're not a Jew, you had no obligation whatsoever. Another rabbi went somewhat further down the line and, and said that if if it came to a person who was even a Jew, if they were an informer to the Romans, if they were a heretic or if they were a renegade, then actually they should be pushed into the ditch and not helped out. So this is the context of Jewish religious thinking at the time. And people are expecting that Jesus will say, who is on the neighbor's list? But Jesus instead tells a story. And the story that he tells is God's answer to the question, who is my neighbor? We know the story well. It's a story about a man traveling down a road from Jerusalem where the temple is, the epicenter of Judaism, down to Jericho. People wouldn't have been surprised to hear that a priest was traveling down this road because Jericho was like the country retreat for priests. And so they wouldn't have been surprised that uh, a priest was heading down the road. They would have probably thought in their mind's eye that he would have been, he would have been of a, probably a social standing that he would have uh, most likely have had some form of transport, a donkey or something. And uh, it's a 17-mile long stretch of road. It descends 3,300 feet, and it's like a desert road. There's actually very, very clear vistas along the road. You can see a long way in front of you what's coming up. And so the people listening to the story who don't know how the story is going to unfold would have been well aware that the person riding a donkey on the road, coming down that road, would have been able to see well in advance and had plenty of time to think before they saw a man lying in the ditch. And it's interesting because the rabbis so often, when they told their stories, they told their stories about what to do when you find someone lying in a ditch. So the story Jesus tells is a typical rabbinic story about a man lying in a ditch. It just happens to be along this 17-mile stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So says Jesus, this man traveling down this road is, suffers a brutal attack. He is beaten, he is stripped, he is robbed, and he is left for dead. And I wonder if those listening to the story first off would have thought, is this one of those stories where a um, uh, person encounters baddies, 
terrible, destitute, desperate situation, lying in a ditch. Then comes the rescuer. Then comes the priest coming down the road, the teacher, the demonstrator of compassion. They would have expected that perhaps this priest will be the one who will be the hero of the story. He will show mercy to the poor man lying in the ditch. From the priest's perspective, they would have known the fact that the priest would have had a number of questions racing through his mind. Does he touch the body? If it's dead, it'll be ceremonially unclean and he will have days of ritual to go through to cleanse himself if it's a dead body. Is it a robber lying in wait, feigning injury, about to attack him? Is it a non-Jew? And if so, a good priest shouldn't touch them. Or is it a Jewish neighbor that a priest was duty-bound to go to and show compassion to? Jesus says the priest passed by on the other side. The next person coming down the road, he's a Levite. He's a religious lay person, Jesus tells us. He would have been an attendant to the priests. He may have been riding. He may have been on foot. He comes down the road, clear of view of what's ahead. He too passes by on the other side. Lots of times in all cultures, these stories come in threes. We all know the Paddy Englishman, Paddy Irishman, Paddy Scotsman. There tend to be three people in these stories in terms of uh, the sort of uh, different responses by different people. And imagine, like all of us, the minds of the listeners are racing ahead. Who might this third person be? Who are the people who might be coming from Jerusalem where the temple is down towards Jericho? Who are the three types of people who are allowed to serve in the temple in Jerusalem? And there are only three types of people. Priests, Levites, and Jewish men. I wonder, I think the listeners, might this third person be someone who'll put the priests and Levites to shame? Is this a story about the typical down-to-earth, ordinary Jewish man who shows up the religious establishment by showing mercy to the person lying in the ditch? But the Jewish man has already traveled. He has been beaten, robbed, and stripped. The Jewish man is lying in a ditch in the side of the road. A Samaritan, said Jesus, comes down the road. People would have started to feel very uncomfortable. Is this the third person, a Samaritan? Is this the person, surely, he's going to rescue the day? Or is this a story that seems just to go downhill all the way and this person is going to somehow put the boot into this person? Because that was what we expect as Jewish people of Samaritans. In the Jewish synagogue at this time, there were actually prayers prayed that non-Jews, Gentiles, would not inherit the kingdom of God. And actually in the context of that gathering for worship, there were curses declared over the Samaritan people because they were seen as half-breeds. They were seen as not quite truly Jewish. In the context of human history, we know the fact that the people that we find it most difficult to get on with, the people with whom we struggle about animosity more than anyone else, are the people who are more like us than anybody else on planet Earth, but we feel just aren't quite the same. 
scandalous. The Samaritan comes down the road. And what does he do? He offers comprehensive compassion, transport, first aid, food, shelter, money, kindness. One of the things that amazes me about this parable is that half of the parable is actually a description of the compassion that the good Samaritan shows to the man lying in the ditch. Jesus spends time describing just how comprehensive this compassion is that there's this poor man receives lying half dead in the side of the road. It would have been scandalous enough had Jesus gone beyond the a good Jew should be someone who loves their Jewish neighbor and had gone on to say, a good Jew is someone who loves not only their Jewish neighbor, but also their Samaritan neighbor, that would have been like a, oh, that would have been just revolutionary. But what Jesus says just goes far, far beyond that. What Jesus says is that a merciful Samaritan may be closer to the kingdom of God that a merciless and pious Jew, even if that Jew is a religious leader. It was scandalous from Jewish ears what he was saying. But what Jesus is doing in this parable is that he's, he's describing the type of mercy that God gives. See, Jesus was telling like a, a prophetic parable and so often they were parables that were partially aimed at the religious establishment. It's like a prophetic word from Jesus who is saying that here is the Jewish nation that has met Satan on the road of life and has ended up stripped, beaten, robbed and left for dead. And the Jewish religious establishment have done nothing to help the Jewish nation. You see, Jesus is saying, God requires mercy rather than sacrifices. He's looking for compassion, not religious duty. Like all good storytellers, Jesus Christ wants us to place ourselves in the midst of the story. He wants to invite us to relate to someone in the story. And when we first hear it, I wonder to whom do you initially relate? Is it the good Samaritan? Is it the priest? Is it the Levite? Is it the man lying in the ditch at the side of the road? The person whom Jesus wants us to relate to is the person lying in the ditch. He wants everyone to come to the realization that as human beings, by ourselves, if we encounter Satan on the road of life, in the midst of discouragement and difficulty, and disappointment that we will end up stripped, naked, 
beaten, robbed at the side of the road. And that each of us needs the good Samaritan, the unexpected stranger, even the one whom we assumed was our actual enemy, to come and to give us compassion, to bind up our wounds, to put us back on our feet, to pay the price, and to have a continuing relationship with us. The good Samaritan is Jesus Christ, the one whom we have assumed in our natural state is our actual enemy. Because we tend to blame God for all of the disappointments and difficulties in our lives. But actually, Jesus, like the Good Samaritan, has come to us and given us comprehensive care. He has paid the price on the cross for us that we may live a life with him. He has healed us. He has bound up our wounds He has continued to love us with comprehensive care. It's only whenever the hearers of this parable, you and I, can relate to Jesus meeting us as we lie in the ditch that we will understand what Jesus is teaching. Do you think that the man in the ditch, he was brought to the inn and cared for Do you think that his view of Samaritans would have changed? Absolutely. He would have viewed Samaritans completely differently. And that's the reality of the Christian life. That once we've encountered the good Samaritan, Jesus Christ, who we thought was our enemy, and let him in and received his care, then our view about all people that we may have assumed before were enemies completely changes. Because what Jesus is ultimately looking for, who Jesus is ultimately looking for, are people who will be like him. Who having received his compassion and care will actually be people who are transformed and do exactly the same to others. Go, said Jesus, and do likewise. A question that I often think of after reading this passage is is I always find a very sobering question for me personally. And it's this question. And I ask it to you as well. Among your neighbors, friends, work colleagues and family, when people around you find themselves in a ditch of some type and there are many people in a ditch Perhaps like me, you have found yourself in a ditch at times in your life. When the people who are around you find themselves in that position and are desperate for help, is it you they think of? Are you the person they'll pick up the phone to? Are you the person whom they know will give non-judgmental care and will help them practically and listen to them and give things to them and, and love them and show compassion to them? I find that a really challenging question. And are we even the people who go out 
the amazing thing about the Samaritan was, I know it's a, it's a story, and, but such a man like the good Samaritan would have not just done this as a first act of kindness. I imagine he developed a pattern of doing acts of kindness in every day of his life. Are we willing in the fabric of our day, in the pattern of our week, to be interrupted by people in need? One of the things that I find most challenging about this is that actually I'm one of those people who has an agenda. I get up in the morning and I have things to achieve. I have a list in my mind. I have a list sometimes on paper. I have a list on my, on my phone. I have lots of lists of all the things I want to achieve. Remember, there are some other people who have those lists too. Being organized, great. There's a spiritual gift of administration. Here's the challenge if you are smitten like me in that way. Interruption comes as a really difficult thing. See, a man like the Samaritan, who did he disappoint? Who was he late for? What business deal did he miss? What family member did he keep waiting? What money did he give away that could have been given to someone else in his family circle? What did the Samaritan give up to help the man in the ditch? How am I responding to the interruptions in my day where God is saying to me, Nigel, stop, listen, and see how you can care for this person and not rush on to tick off something else on the list that I feel must be done. There was a French monk called Dominic Vallon. This is many centuries ago, and... uh, He developed cancer and he asked to be released from the monastic order that he was in to go and live in the slums in Paris and he was granted leave to do so. He got a job as a night watchman and uh, each night he would finish his work and in the early hours of the morning when it was getting light he would uh, go and sit on a park bench in the middle of Paris and he would simply listen to people's stories and he would share his sweets with people. The type of people he encountered tend to be prostitutes, um, people leering, men leering at the prostitutes, and uh, drunken people. But he didn't judge. He just spent time with them, listened to their stories, and shared his sweets with them. Then one day, uh, someone asked him what his story was, and so he told them. From that day, there was no more filthy stories There was no more dirty language. They found him dead soon after in his apartment in Paris. Apartment might be a bit of a grand term for it. The only facility in the place where he lived was a cold water tap. 7,000 people went to his funeral. Yet what had he done? He just listened to people and shared his sweets with them. On the tombstone of Dominic Vallon, it just simply says, a witness to Jesus Christ, nothing else. They found his prayer journal after his funeral, 
And in, the, in his prayer journal, the last entry that he wrote was this. I can genuinely say that I have no other interests other than the love of God. And yet what had he done? He had listened to people's stories and shared his sweets with them. The religious leader asked, how far does my love need to extend? The answer that Jesus gives is God's answer. Love everybody, especially those who are in need. So the challenge for us, because this is primarily a story about us out in our day-to-day lives, is to be good Samaritans, people of compassion, looking out for people in ditches. And that can be done in all sorts of ways. Someone just looks as if they're just not quite as bright and happy and carefree as normal. And we try and find a way to just encourage them or buy them a bun and coffee break or it's not rocket science. Or just to listen to someone who needs time to talk. There are all sorts of simple ways that we can help people. And primarily the calling for us as the people of God is to do that when we are out there in our places of work and family and neighborhood. That's the main call of Christian service in our lives. Not when we're gathered together, but when actually we're dispersed. In the place where only God will see the good that we do. But we as a church, as a Christian family, we want to grow in compassion and we're really looking forward to September onwards. We're going to launch some new ministries and the idea that here in the church building and over in the hall, which is about the same size as this building, you maybe, maybe haven't seen it, and uh, to, to have places like a campus of compassion in the middle of Bangor that people can come to for a listening ear and a cup of tea or coffee and find some clothes and find some food, find some prayer, find some people who love them. Alongside all the other good work that happens through the statutory agencies and charities and other churches, because there is so much need, there are so many people in a ditch of some type to help people, to love people, to listen to people, to show compassion to people. The call of Jesus Christ, the invitation of Jesus Christ, is to meet the one who is the good Samaritan. To recognize that all of us need to meet the good Samaritan. To recognize that there may be times in our lives when we are deeply in the ditch of sin and disappointment and brokenness. And Jesus Christ alone is the one who can pull us out. Nobody else. But when he pulls us out, he has a grand commission for us. He has an amazing vision and vista for our lives. And it is to be just like the one who has pulled us out of the ditch. What a wonderful call you and I have to be, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the one who stopped, came to the man was, and gave comprehensive compassion. And he ultimately paid the price that needed to be paid so that you and I could recover 
from the attack that we have endured and have hope and life and dignity and a future in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And to be able to go out as agents of Christ into the world to pray, to listen, to speak, to give, to bless, so that other people in and through our lives will taste how good God is.